Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Um, so, Luke 9. So, this is, the, we, we have all four Gospels tonight, and that's because uh, they all tell some of the same stories. And that doesn't always happen, um, but in this case they do. The, the passages in John are actually a little bit go on their own direction, um, and I think those do come up at the end. Um, but, but the beginning, we're going to, we're going to catch up on John, catch up with John the Baptist. So what is the last thing anyone remembers about John the Baptist? Does anybody recall? He, um, sent the, a couple of his like disciples to see if, uh, Jesus was really the Messiah. That's good. That's exactly right. So he sent some disciples to ask Jesus and Jesus said, go back and tell him what you've seen. Um, and, and all the healings and the signs and all that. Very good. So here we go. Luke chapter 9, verse 7 through 9 says this. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, before I go any further, just to remind you what a Tetrarch is, and I'm actually going to change my background here rather than the screen. I'll just change the background and give you a little picture here. So this, what this is, is so a, a Tetrarch, just to remind you, a Tetrarch is a quarter of a province of Rome. So Rome had lots of different kind of hierarchies <laughs> and leadership, and they had a lot of governors. And there was what's called a, a, a tetrarchy. There were these three leaders, and we'll explain how three break into four here in a second, but there were these three leaders that were tetrarchs. That means they each controlled basically a quarter of this province in Rome. And the reason there's only three of them is because one of them actually controls two quarters. So uh, they're all they're all Herods, um, which means that, that Herod might just be a title, but in this case, it also means they're all related to each other. Um, and so there's a little legend, which might be too small for you to see. But basically, as you look at this map, you see there's a red area and a green area and a yellow area, right? Does everybody kind of see that? So the red area, uh, one of the Herods, um, whose name is uh, Archelaus, and he's a full brother to Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas is the Herod that's referred to in the New Testament as King Herod. And he's the, yellow, he's the green area, rather. And that means essentially that he has, he has Galilee, so that, that area there in the middle. So a lot of very strongly Jewish areas. And then Herod's half-brother, Philip, has the yellow area off to the side. And I wanted to show you this because we're actually going to run into Philip today a little bit. And we're going to, and I want to make sure you understand when it says Herod is a tetrarch, what he rules. So he rules that green area, which is essentially uh, Galilee and Perea. But Galilee is kind of the area we're most familiar with. Um, now, what's interesting is he's called King Herod in the New Testament. He's not called King Herod anywhere else in history. He's not a king. He's a governor. Um, but it's interesting that we know that he applied, so to speak, to be a king. He wanted the Roman emperors to make him a king, and they consistently refused. And in fact, he was so persistent about it that at one point, they basically threatened him with, with uh, charging him with treason if he wouldn't quit complaining about it. Um, so he stopped asking to be made king. So it's interesting that that we're going to get to one of the gospel writers. Off the top of my head, I forget, but I think it's Luke. We'll see in a second. One of the gospel writers calls him King Herod, but it appears that it's either 
just kind of a local thing that people who live under the governor call him King Herod because he can make them call him whatever he wants. Or it might even be ironic that the gospel writer is calling him King Herod kind of almost as an insult, right? That he wanted to be, but everybody knows he's not really king. Um, so what he is, is he's a governor. He's a tetrarch of this green area. He's the brother to, to uh, Philip, who has the yellow area. Okay. Um, I asked a question. Yeah. Well, I'm confused. Okay. Well, so you're saying the Herod of the Bible, um, but so is that Herod Antipas. Um, is that the one where Jesus gets, when he gets passed back and forth between like Pontius Pilate and him? Yes, that's the same Herod. Okay, well, that seems a little odd to me because he doesn't rule in Jerusalem or even that close to Jerusalem. Which is why Herod isn't initially the person that he goes to, right? Pontius Pilate is. We'll see when we get there why Pilate passes him to Herod. It's probably just a, an attempt at a political alliance and an attempt for Pontius to not be responsible. But you're correct. Herod isn't officially over the area that, that Jesus is in. So he sends him all the way to Galilee? Well, but, Jesus, or... but Jesus isn't. He's just from... already there. Yeah, and Jesus isn't from Jerusalem, right? True. He's from the area of, of Nazareth, which we'd have to look at the green map to see where that is. That might fall under Judah, uh, Herod's jurisdiction. But it is true. There's no reason for him to go to Herod. It's really just, a, it, again, Pontius Pilate makes a special request to send him to Herod. And, and we'll kind of see okay. that. We'll see. And I think, I think it actually says in one of the Gospels, too, that Herod was in Jerusalem because of uh, Passover. So I think that's, so it wasn't, he wasn't necessarily being sent uh, anywhere. Jesus wasn't being sent anywhere so far that Herod had to be in Jerusalem because of the Passover celebration. That could be right. I don't remember, That's but like I say, we'll, we'll definitely see when we get there. Um, what about when Jesus was a baby? That's a different Herod. Related okay. to related to this Herod, but not the same Herod. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so it says, so I'm going to go ahead and get in the way of the map a little bit, but at least you have an idea there what's going on. All right. So, uh, so it says, now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. Now, this is referring to, what, so what we didn't talk about, we were talking about how Jesus went back and he was dismissed and we talked about him sending out his apostles. But the other thing that happened two weeks, or yeah, I guess a couple of weeks ago or three weeks, whenever it was now, the other thing that happened that we read in that area was that Jesus was really turning up the heat on the miracles. So he's been doing a lot more miracles. He's been doing a lot of things that the Sometimes he's telling people to be quiet, don't make a big thing of it. Sometimes he doesn't tell them. But either way, even when he tells people to be quiet, the news spreads because daughters are coming back to life and, and people with leprosy are not having leprosy so that the news is spreading. He's, he's having an impact. It's getting bigger and bigger. He can't go anywhere without crowds following him around. We're going to see that tonight even. He's just constantly pressed. So he's very popular right now. He's very famous. And he's famous because he's doing these amazing miracles. Uh, remember, he he cast the demons out of Legion or cast Legion out of the man. <laughs> and then people said, you know, no one has ever done anything like this, you know, when he, when he cleanses people of demons. So he's got this reputation that even though he's trying to keep a lid on it, it's, it's just too big right now. And that's when it says Herod 
of the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, that's what it's referring to. He hears about everything that Jesus is doing. Remember, Herod is a Jew, ostensibly, and to some degree that's true, not as much as he claims to be, um, but he is a Jew. He has some 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 uh, Jewish relationships, uh, family connections, um, and he likes to kind of play that card. So he's kind of interested for a number of reasons in, in anybody who's claiming to be a Jewish Messiah. So he's he's hearing about all this going on, but this is what it says <coughs> about his reaction. It says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Now, this is an interesting way for the gospel writers to introduce this, because as far as we know at this point, John the Baptist is still alive. Turns out he's not still alive, but in typical Hebrew chronology, they have not told us that yet. They're going, and in fact, um, in fact, um, Luke doesn't tell us at all. It's Matthew and Mark who are going to get into the details about how he died, in fact. So, but but that that's why it says he thought, oh, John must have been raised from the dead because he's he's doing all these amazing things that he would think of John doing or or think of John being as popular. Um, and so he's he's it's actually his guilty conscience. We're going to see that in a second. It's his own fear and guilt that's making him think maybe John has come back. Others said that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. So again, all of this conversation, very similar to when when they they uh, came to Jesus and said, who are you, right? And and some of them said he was Elijah and some said he was a prophet and and they weren't sure who he was. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the, the Messiah. Same thing, that the, the rumors are, are, are flurrying about. Who is this amazing guy? Is he John the Baptist come back to life? Is he, is he an Elijah? Is he another prophet? But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So John fears, I mean, Herod fears that John's come back to life, but I think something about the fact that John's been beheaded, you know, I mean, there's coming back to life and then there's coming back to life and regrowing ahead. You know, I think the whole thing, he's just like, I don't, I don't know what's happening. Is this really John? If it is. Uh, and so he tries to see Jesus. That's an interesting thing Luke says that is not followed up on anywhere, because the implication is that Herod never got to at this point. Now, clearly he does get to, he gets to meet Jesus later, as we just discussed, <clears throat> but he doesn't get out. He tries to go see him now, but he can't. The crowds are too big or, you know, he's got his own safety to consider too. So he's probably not eager to just go out into the huge crowds and kind of rub shoulders with with the the common folk to try to see Jesus. So on some level he tries to get to see him, but he doesn't doesn't succeed at this point. And that's all Luke says about this. Mark is going to give us quite a bit more details. And it's Mark who calls him King Herod. And again, probably ironically, although possibly in the locale, that's what people called him. Um, King Herod heard about this for Jesus. So this is uh, Mark 6, 14 through 29. King Herod heard about this for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So in, in Mark's version, and it's probably true that Herod is conflicted, he probably goes both ways, right? In Mark's version, he's concerned that John has come back to life. And I think it's because Herod is a little superstitious, and he's a little scared, and he has guilt he, he's conflicted about having killed John. He didn't really want to do it, but he, he didn't try very hard not to either, as we're going to see in a second. And so I think he feels guilt, and I think he feels fear that if John the Baptist has come back to life, he's in trouble, and he's in big trouble. And so now Mark's going to give us the backstory to this. 
For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So just to be clear what this is about, you know, in the, in the Jewish world, if, you're, if your brother dies, you're supposed to marry his wife. So why is this a problem that he married his brother's wife? Well, because his brother's still alive. His brother is not, in fact, dead. Um, and what we know historically is, in fact, that Herod was married, Philip, and this is the guy who owns the yellow area here in the map, um, Philip uh, was married to Herodias, Herod was married to somebody else, and they both get divorced so that Herod can marry Herodias. Now, we have no idea how Philip felt about this, whether it was done in protest or whether he didn't care. We don't know. Um, historically, Philip is sort of known as a somewhat of a kind and benevolent uh, leader, but he could also be seen as someone who just avoids conflict, and, and who knows if he just didn't, you know, want to get into it with Herod, so he let him take his wife. The point is, this is not a Jew, Jewish law thing where he marries his brother's wife. This is just uh, adultery and easy divorce and possession and ownership uh, of a woman that he liked <coughs> that he stole or coerced or bought <coughs> from his brother. Weird situation, not a good one. One that was kind of a scandal that John points out. And this is the reason that John got imprisoned. It says, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. So John is making a stink of it. He's, he's talking directly to Herod because that's the kind of guy John is. He gets arrested. The, the Herodias, the wife, wants him dead. She's like, don't just arrest him. You should kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. So Herod is impressed by John in some way, and he's afraid of John, and he's afraid of the people. In fact, we're going to know, uh, it says that more specifically in Matthew, in, uh, in Mark, or Matthew, we're in Mark now, says that more specifically in Matthew. Um, it also indicates that when it says, Herod feared John and protected him, Oh, no, it doesn't here. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. He's afraid if he kills John that there will be an uprising against him as well. <clears throat> so he doesn't kill him, but it's this point of tension between him and his wife. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. This is the other thing we learned about Herod. He doesn't understand John. John amuses him and confuses him, but he likes to listen to him. So he keeps listening to him, but he keeps not understanding what John is saying. John is trying to get him to repent, to come to the kingdom of God, to to, you know, disavow his sins. He's not doing any of those things, so he doesn't understand what John is saying, but he does enjoy listening to him. And then it says this, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, Josephus tells us her name is Salome. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, let me just say very quickly, we don't know anything about what this means. We don't know how old Salome is. We don't know what danced means. Um, and we don't know what pleased means. There's a there's sort of a tradition that this is a very sexual kind of thing, <laughs> that she came in and did a really kind of provocative dance. That's possible. We don't know if that's the case. It's interesting that the word danced here can also just mean played. It literally could just mean that he has this 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 young daughter or stepdaughter. Again, we're not clear what her relationship to Herod is. Uh, this young daughter or stepdaughter who is just amusing everybody by some game she's playing. So we don't know. We don't know kind of is this something that 
she's doing provocatively or is she innocent in all this? It doesn't really matter. What does matter is what Herodias does as a result of all this. So all we know is that she comes in, she dances or plays, Herod is amused, he really likes it, and he's so amused that the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, one thing it's worth pointing out is the phrase we've heard before. It's it's the same thing that was said to Esther. There's a big difference, though, between King Xerxes, who said that to Esther, and Herod, who says that to Salome. And that said, Herod doesn't have the authority to do this. He's not a king. He doesn't even have a kingdom. But what he does have is this governorship, but it's not his. It's Rome's. So I, I sincerely doubt that there's anything. This is just hyperbole. This is just a figure of speech because he can't really give her half of his governorship anyway. That's It's not his to give. Um, but I think the point is just, hey, I, you, I really like what you did. I'll give you a present. What do you want? So she went out and asked her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. Um, at once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. <coughs> I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. He doesn't want to do this. We already know that. He doesn't want to kill John. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. I think it's more his dinner guests than his oaths. I don't get the sense that Herod cares that much about breaking a promise. But I do think he cares about looking like he's breaking a promise in front of all his dinner guests. So he made this very extravagant gesture in front of all these people at his party. And to back away from it now will make him look weak <coughs> or unreliable. So he goes ahead with it. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on the platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. I just want to say, traumatic much? Uh, this poor girl, uh, you know, what should I what should I ask for, mom? Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And then it's presented to her on a platter and she takes it to her mom. I, I can't imagine this, uh, this, this goes without consequence for this poor gal. Um, on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So the disciples of John hear about this. They come, apparently Herod lets them take the body, um, presumably the headless body. Um, and and bury it and give it kind of the honor that it's due according to Jewish custom. Um, so that's a story according to Mark. Let's read it again in Matthew. It's very similar. There's a few little extra emphases, but we'll read it again, and then I'm interested in your guys' comments. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head on a platter. Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he granted that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. So one additional thing that's mentioned here in Matthew is that the disciples hear about this. They bury John and then they go tell Jesus, hey, he's dead. He's been he's been beheaded. All right. Any comments, any thoughts on this, this really fascinating but also terrible story uh any comments before we uh before we move on i guess what can you say it is what it is right
Okay. Um, <clears throat> so in Matthew 14, 13 through 21, it says this right after that story. It says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, this is a little bit confusing chronologically because it appeared we were hearing a flashback, right? In other words, people were saying, it's the first thing we heard was that Herod heard that all, that Jesus was doing all these amazing things. And then we hear that he was saying, but how can this be that John came back to life? And then we're told sort of a retrospect flashback, how Herod beheaded John. And so, but then it says after that, it says when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So the question becomes, are we still in the flashback? And now we're seeing Jesus's reaction to what happened? Or did Jesus only hear about John the Baptist at the same time we did, like after he performed the miracles? And then Herod is like, wait, but I killed John. And is that the moment at which people realize, oh, John's dead? Because of one of the other gospel writers, I think it's that. I think that no one knew that John had been beheaded, except for the people at that party. No, None of the common people kind of knew that John had been beheaded until Herod starts saying things like, how could how can this be John? John has come back from the dead because I killed him. The reason that might make sense is because Herod didn't want the people to know he'd killed John, remember? Because he was afraid of them. So maybe he tried to keep that secret, um, but it wasn't a very well-kept secret. And Jesus just finds out now um, after he does the miracles and it becomes a point of discussion. There's another reason I think that, because one of the other gospel writers gives a different chronology, which which puts them together and says that at the same time that Jesus has just sent out the apostles is the same time that he hears about John the Baptist's death. So I think that although it's already happened, nobody heard about it until now, or, or, or not nobody, but the general populace, and Jesus himself didn't hear about it till now. So the burial of John the Baptist is probably also not immediately, but is around this time. And we don't know how much time has gone between, by the way, John the Baptist being beheaded and Herod saying, "Who is this? is this John back from the dead? Maybe it was pretty quick. Maybe it's only been a couple of days. <clears throat> but the point here is that Jesus hears about John the Baptist's death and he does what most of us would do. He grieves and he chooses to grieve by getting alone. Uh, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So Jesus' reaction is, I, I need to get away. He's sad. So he wants to get away. He wants to pray. He wants to grieve in private. He wants to process. So he tries to get away. I once kind of walked through the chronology. And if you look at it, he's already been at this point, I think. I'd have to go back and look. I don't remember how I reached this conclusion before, so I could be wrong. But <laughs> my recollection is he's already been up for like 12 to 18 hours at this point. Um, and so he's he's tired. And now all he wants to do is get some time to rest and get away from the crowd so he can mourn John. And then we have about another 18 hours before he's actually able to do that. Um, and so this is this is sort of the beginning of it. And, and kind of watching how Jesus reacts at this moment of grief, of pain, of tired, of worn out, watching how he reacts to people, I think is very telling. Um, about about who God is and just how loving Jesus actually is um, and how giving he is. Um, and yet even he needs the time alone. So he keeps trying to get it. It's important. He doesn't feel guilty about it, 
but but again, watching his reactions and the difficulty of it, his his lack of frustration and irritation with people is is pretty impressive. So it says he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So he takes a boat, which we're going to begin to see is the only way he ever gets away. The only way he actually ever gets any privacy is on a boat. Remember, even when he wants to preach safely from a distance, he gets on a boat because you can't, people except Jesus can't walk on water, so they can't follow him out there. So when he wants to get a solitary moment, he takes a boat and he crosses the Sea of Galilee. But the problem is the people, they see him getting in a boat and it's like they run. We're going to read that later. They run around to catch him on the other side so that as soon as he lands, as soon as he gets off the boat, already there's a crowd there waiting for him. But his response is not to get back on the boat, not to get irritated, not to send them away. His response is he takes compassion on them and he heals their sick. So even in the midst of his grief, and even in the midst of his just, his soul is weary, his heart is weary, his mind is tired, his body's tired, and yet here he is, not because of duty, not out of resentment, not because he feels like he has to, but because he feels genuine compassion, that even in his own grief, he can still feel compassion for them, for where they're at. It says that he begins to heal their sick. As even do, we know how long, do we know how long the boat trip would have been? Um, not very long, like less than a, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure, but my, I gather it's like a, you know, an hour. It's not, it's not a super long kind of trip across the, across okay. the, let's see, might even be less than that. You know, maybe, maybe it depends on the weather, but I think it's, it's an hour or less. I, that's a good question. I have to look that up for sure. My impression from other travels when they do this is, is less than that. It's long enough that people apparently can run. Uh, around the sea and get to the other side but that also would depend on the weather and the waves right maybe that's slowing him down and not them um yeah so that's an interesting question but not not like not like a day not like anything super super long when jesus landed and saw a large crowd he had compassion on them and healed their sick as evening approached the disciples came to him and said this is a remote place and it's already getting late send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So he, he gets over there. He immediately is swallowed up by the crowd. They spend the whole rest of the day with the crowd. It starts to get late. There's not food nearby. The apostles come to him and make a very reasonable argument. And I even give them benefit of thinking that possibly they are also looking out for Jesus. I mean, at the most generous possibility here is that they're looking out for the crowd, which is what they say. Hey, they're going to want to eat and we should let them go so they can eat but they may also be looking out for Jesus. They know he's had a rough day. At this point, they've probably heard about John. They understand that he's trying to get away. And, and so they might even be trying to give him a reason, almost like they know he cares so much about them that if they say to him, you need to get away and take care of yourself, he might say, but they need my help. So in their thinking, they're like, well, well, we'll make it on the crowd. They need to go so they can get food, giving Jesus sort of an out if he wants it to say, okay. Jesus doesn't take that out. Um, even at this moment, when it would be very reasonable to do so, he doesn't do that. In fact, instead, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, this is fascinating. And we'll actually see from a later gospel writer's story. I'll go ahead and tell you this now because it's relevant. This is just a continuation. Remember, he's already sent them out on a mission. He's already sent them out. And they've traveled throughout Jewish areas. 
and they've rested upon the hospitality of other people, um, and they've they've seen ministry occur. Uh, my wife just sent me the side of feeling. This is what it was about. She just sent me a little a little Google thing that says, "How long does it take to walk around the Sea of Galilee?" It takes about thirteen hours. So so that so that then it could have been a 13 hour trip if that is correct. It's also possible he didn't go directly across, right? From edge to edge. So maybe he just met them on, you know, three quarters of the way around or half the way around. But anyway, interesting, interesting information. 13 hours to walk. Uh, says that, so it would have taken them 13 hours to walk. It would have taken him two hours to row is what the, what the, what well, that's the interesting because they way. got there, they got there before he landed. So he must not have gone all the way across um, for them to beat him there. It's kind of interesting. I don't know how they did that. <clears throat> That's a puzzle for another day. Um, Meredith, are you raising your hand? Yeah. Okay, I know you explained some chronology thing that I didn't get, um, but uh, so, I mean, you're saying that they already did this, but then Mark six, like right after this says about how they told him about all they had done, but that, that was then before this whole Herod thing. Um, so, which maybe like if it happens in real time, then are the disciples like actually like not there, but they have to be there because they're, um, they're involved in this or, did they are we just throwing chrono, um, chronology out no, of the window that is what i was referring to that you missed so so i was going to explain it when we got to mark but since you brought it up i'll go ahead and point it out and then when we get there people will see that so here's the thing matthew says that this happens after john hears of after jesus hears about john the baptist's death mark says this all happens after the apostles get back from their little missionary trip right oh okay so the oh, answer okay is, i see that okay so the answer is the apostles got back from their missionary trip, and while they were gone, Jesus heard about John the Baptist and is trying to mourn him when they return. So yeah. both are true. Right? They go on their trip. So, so here's how it seems to flow. Herod kills John. Jesus does a bunch of miracles and sends the apostles off to continue doing miracles. Herod hears well, about... Didn't he, so you don't think he sent the apostles before... Herod kills John. Uh, he might have, but no, I don't. Okay. I, I think because, because remember, Herod is saying John the Baptist has come back to life after yeah. he sees all the miracles that Jesus has done. So he's killed yeah. John the Baptist before that. True. But I think Jesus doesn't hear about it until after the, the apostles go out. Okay. So Jesus sends the apostle. So Herod kills John the Baptist. But, but the apostles were gone for a while, weren't they? It doesn't tell us how long. Could have been a couple days. Could have been a week. Doesn't tell us. Okay. I just always figured it was like months. They went village to village. So it wasn't a couple of days. Village to village is not. But a, like not there were more than there were multiple people going. Right. I mean, that, either way, I, it doesn't tell us. It, it, months or weeks or days, it really doesn't matter. It just appears the chronology is Jesus does a bunch of miracles. Somewhere in there, he sends the apostles out. And Herod hears about all the miracles that are happening. And he says, 
I killed John the Baptist. So th this can't be John unless he's come back to life, which means Herod killed him before he heard about all these miracles from Jesus. Then the apostles come back, and at the same time they come back, Jesus hears about John the Baptist and goes to grief. And I think the reason there's a delay between the killing of John the Baptist and Jesus hearing about it is the very credible explanation that Herod tries to keep it quiet because he was already afraid that if he killed John the Baptist, the people would revolt. So he doesn't let the cat out of the bag for a while. So Matthew just doesn't, just doesn't start with the apostles telling Jesus and reporting Correct. Correct. what they had done. Correct, but Matthew does acknowledge the apostles have been out before he talks about what happened with Herod. Why wouldn't they put what then either Mark or Luke before that? Because before Matthew, I mean, I guess it's a continuation of Matthew. Yeah, why, why would you put it before? This is the same because like the because the apostles came back before uh before Jesus heard what had happened. We don't know that. It's around the same time. I don't know which exactly happened first. Okay. My my assumption is he heard about it while they were gone, but he could have heard about it as soon as they got back. But we just have these two events happening roughly the same time. They're getting back from their ministry and telling Jesus about what's happened to them. And he's heard about John the Baptist and wants to grieve. And that's all happening at once. <clears throat> and the reason that it, and, and Matthew just happens to use one chronological marker that this happened after John heard about, Jesus heard about John the Baptist. And Mark uses a different chronological ma uh, marker that this happened when the apostles came back to tell him what they'd done. But both Matthew and Mark do tell the stories in that order. They talk about the apostles going out, then they talk about Herod talking about how he had killed John. We don't know when he killed John, but we know he's talked about that he already had. True. Okay. Well, and so I that think makes I sense. think it helps some of that chronology too to think that we just are not used to news taking any amount of time to spread. Yes. And so we live in such a connected society that it's hard for us to figure that he killed. John and then the apostles did their whole mission, however long that was, and then they came back and then Jesus found out. But that's just, I think that's makes a ton of sense. The news just didn't travel, especially if you said Herod wanted to keep it quiet. But even without that, there just wasn't an, the only communication networks were people traveling and sending notes. And that's so right. it's not that unbelievable that even if he wasn't trying to keep it a secret, which he was, which adds a layer, it would take a long time for news to travel. And in fact, and, yeah, and I guess I mean we're really interested in this and everything and its survival. But back then, I mean, I don't know that it would have been that big of a deal that John the Baptist was beheaded. Well, but and even on top of that, if John's been in prison for a while and people know Herod kind of wants to kill him, there's probably been several false reports that he's dead. It's probably really hard to find out reliably is he dead or alive. So they've probably actually gotten the message, oh, John might be, he might have executed John. And then a week later, no, John is still in prison. So there's even some of that ambiguity. And we do That's know, true. we do know how Jesus knows. We know that he knows because John's disciples told him, but think about that process. First, they heard about it somehow, again, over whatever slow grapevine came to them. Then they didn't go tell Jesus right away. They traveled to where Herod is, requested the body, 
took the body, buried the body. And in the Jewish world, it, burying the body can sometimes mean going through a seven-day mourning process. So maybe that's what they're doing here. And then they go tell Jesus what happened. So even that alone, just the process from them finding out, burying the body, and then going to tell Jesus, it's, it's at least a week minimum and probably could be more. Again, we're used to CNN news, but but again, this would, and they have to find Jesus. I mean, all of this, you know, is going to take some time. So I, I don't think it's at all weird that there's a lag time from John died to Jesus found out. Yeah, I guess, I think I just assumed that everything kind of happened in the, a similar place. And even if Herod was trying to keep it secret, it probably wouldn't keep very secret. I mean, he has some control over that for sure. But at some point it gets out. And again, it appears to me that part of the reason it gets out is because Herod starts talking about it. He's like, is this John the Baptist come back from the dead? In which case, kind of like we do when we read the text, because it's the order it comes to us. Maybe it's written that way because that's the order it came to them. That the first they heard about John being dead was Herod talking about how he'd already done it and wondering if he'd come back to life. So, <clears throat> you know, it's laid that's out. That's true. And maybe it's laid out yeah. that way. That's how they received it. Cool. Um. So the reason I mentioned at this point, though, that that this is after the apostles have come back, and we were gonna we're gonna get to that in Mark too. The reason I mention that now, before we get to Mark, is because it explains a little bit of his reaction to them. They've already seen God come through with their hospitality, and if it was months, they've seen it for months. If it was a week or two, they've seen it for a week or two. They've already seen God provide for them because Jesus told them, "Don't take anything with you," right on this missionary trip. So they didn't take anything with them. They've already seen Jesus, God provide for them. Not only that, they've already been given authority to do ministry that Jesus is doing. So this is sort of just a continuation of that deputization, that they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, you need to send people away to be fed. And he says, you feed them. Keep, keep doing your mission just because you're back doesn't mean it's done. Keep doing your ministry. Jesus, I mean, God provided for you. He can still provide for you and he can provide for these people. You give them something to eat. But it's definitely a challenge, which is, again, what you're doing when you're deputizing people. He's continuing to push them. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's actually more than 5,000. Uh, it's like 10,000 or, you know, uh, 12,000 or, you know, it's, it's, we don't know how many children there are. So it's, it's definitely more than 5,000. There's a couple of interesting things. Trying to picture how this actually works. It appears the way it works is that Jesus is breaking the bread, handing it out, and then breaking another piece and handing it out, and then breaking another piece and handing it out, and he just keeps breaking pieces off of this, this bread that just lasts forever. And, and so there is actually quite a bit of effort in this miracle. The apostles have to hand it out to 5,000 people. Jesus has to break the bread for 5,000 people. It isn't just like they all of a sudden all had bread. So, And it's also a miracle that is really only noticeable to the apostles. Do you see that? In other words, as they're handing the bread out to the 5,000 people, they don't know where this bread's coming from. They just assume Jesus had a bunch of bread. It doesn't seem clear to me that they know a miracle's happening at all, but the people who do know a miracle is happening are the people that Jesus asked to feed them. And in fact, they do feed them. 
Jesus shows that he can he can provide what's there. I like this picture because I think that a lot of times what God calls us to do feels impossible. It feels like we don't have the resources for it, even if it's parenting, right? Parenting is an impossible task. We're raising little humans and we don't have the the capacity or the resource for it, or sometimes just making it through the day and living a godly life. It's just like the temptations are so big. I just feel like there's a lot of things God calls us to that just feel sort of impossible. As a pastor, I often feel that way. And, and I think Jesus' message here is, look, if I'm calling you to it, I will provide the resources. I'm not asking you to make it happen. I'm just asking you to hand out the bread as I hand it to you. You know, I will provide the resources. I will give you the, the things you need. And maybe it'll just look like, you know, I'm handing things to you and you're like, any second we're going to be out of bread. But look, there's more. And, and to other people, they may not even know what a miracle it is that you accomplished the task that you were given to accomplish. Uh, but but I think there is a message there for us that that Jesus sends us out, but he doesn't send us out to make fools of ourselves. He sends us out and he says, I'll, 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 I'll give you what's needed. If I'm calling you to do something impossible, I will give you the resources needed for it. I will make it happen. Um, the other thing about this story, before we read it again in Mark, is that there are two events of feeding large crowds of people that are mentioned in the Gospels. There may have been more. Maybe this is a trick God, Jesus did a lot. I don't know. But there are two specific events, and I do believe they are different events. And one of the reasons I believe they're different events is because the same Gospel writers, Mark and Matthew, tell both of them. So in other words, it's not like they're confused and forgot they already told it once. Second reason is they're in different places. This is a heavily Jewish area, in the next story, it's a heavily Gentile area, so it makes sense that Jesus might repeat himself to a different group, a different culture with different points. There's different numbers of people in each case, so again, that doesn't seem happenstance. That seems to emphasize that there's a difference here uh, between them. You might ask, why do the apostles react similarly in each case? But do you really need to ask that? Because they are always reacting similarly, even when Jesus has done the same thing nine times. Um, so I'm not really too surprised by that. I think that still is what happens, right? We, we God does something and we forget and we just kind of go about our day. Um, so let's go to Mark and we'll see right off the bat that chron chronological marker that Meredith was talking about. The apostles gathered around Jesus. So again, both Matthew and Mark have told the same sequence of events with the weird chronology. They both talked about them being sent out. Then they talk about Herod talking about John the Baptist. Then they remind us that Herod killed John the Baptist. And then we have this event, which is after they get back and after Jesus starts grieving John. So both of those are happening at once. Uh, Matthew mentions Jesus is grieving John. Mark mentions the apostles have just gotten back and they're all excited. It says the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. We're going to see from a second mission that they send them on later. This is not just like, you know, reporting the numbers. You can imagine they're excited. This is like, wow, we did this and we did this and we taught this and people responded this way. And, and we saw these miracles happen. This is a, they're excited. So here again, contrast here Jesus is tired and he's grieving and he wants to be alone and here his apostles are all excited and this is it's so hard when you're sad and someone else is excited to meet people where they are but apparently he does you know he he takes the time to 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 be excited with them even as he's grieving John you know I have no way of knowing this but I like to think that he even delays telling them about John because he's He's like, you know, they're really excited about this. There'll be plenty of time <laughs> to tell them what happened to John. Let's let's let them have their moment. Um, they Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So even as they're talking to him, 
they're being interrupted all the time and, and by other people coming in and they don't have a chance to eat. And so finally, Jesus says, look, let's together, let's go get away. And maybe he's going to tell them about John, or maybe he just knows that they're tired. He knows he's tired. It's again, it's a, it's an opportunity to get away. But now in, in Mark's version, he's taking them with him, which I think is probably true in Matthew's. Again, it's just different emphasis. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Again, how exactly does this work? I don't know. Um, maybe news is spreading and not everybody's running around, but some people are coming from the other side already. But but somehow communication is passing all around the, the, the lake. But But I also love this picture of they're literally running to foil Jesus's plan. They don't know that's what they're doing, but Jesus is trying to get alone. And they're like, we're not going to let that happen. And they run to get there before he has a chance. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So all he does is he sees them and he's like, oh, these guys are so lost. They need help and they need somebody. And he's not irritated and he's not frustrated. I think he's still tired. I think he's still sad, but he's also just just there for them and ready to be there for them. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. I mean, this is not an exaggeration. I, I think it would have taken significantly more than half a year's wages to feed 5,000 10,000 people, right? I, I think that is a big ask on Jesus' part if they're thinking they have to buy all this food for them. They, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they find out, they said five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves and then gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. One of the things I like, both of these stories agree on the number of basketfuls left over. And I think it's pretty cool there are 12 left over because there's 12 apostles. So it means that not only did God provide enough resources for them, but sort of as a result, they have they have leftovers. They each have food for tomorrow. They're not only did God provide for them to feed everyone else when they were worried about having to spend, but God actually provided extra for them. Um, and I just there's something very, I don't know, just kind and nice and 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 poetic about God just providing this one extra basketful for each of them. And I don't know how much a basketful is, but that feels like maybe a couple meals, you know, that feels like a, a, a goodly amount. But anyway, that's, that, I like that about that. Um, <clears throat> uh, Luke 9, 10 through 17 says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to him about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because here we are in a remote place. 
And he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go out and buy food for all the crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. How long does that take, I wonder? <laughs> Even just, just the logistics are, are interesting sometimes. The disciples did so and everyone sat down and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Um, interestingly, Mark and Matthew tell another story about the feeding of the five of uh, 4,000. Luke does not tell the other one. He just tells this one. For whatever reason, he doesn't tell the second story. Um, uh, I, I don't make anything of that. It's just a comment. I have something to say about that. Yeah. That uh, your, uh, your comment about the disciples trying to divide uh, 5,000 people into groups of 50, that reminds me of... Um, some of you know, some of you don't. I uh, work as a substitute teacher and uh, just trying to get, uh, oh, 40 children to listen to me today when they're all talking. That's a feat. So I couldn't imagine trying to talk over five, you know, more than 5,000. So, you know, 70, 10,000 people. <laughs> like, you need to come over here and sit down. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, and I, and I can see the grumbling like turning cats. What, what's that? I, I can, I can see the grumbling of all this five thousand people sitting there and saying, "All he has is five loaves of bread. Why are we sitting down for that?" <laughs> Again, I'm pretty sure they couldn't see what he had, right? Because that's such a big crowd. Um, yeah, that's true so too. Probably they just saw food being passed out, and they were probably yeah. grateful. Um, and by the way, this doesn't mean he stopped teaching right? I imagine that in all this time that it's taking for them to sit down and get the food passed out, he could still be talking, he could still be teaching, because that was ostensibly mm -hmm. part of the reason for doing this, so they wouldn't have to leave. Um, so it doesn't mean he isn't still keeping them occupied with teaching, it's just now they're getting a snack, or more than a snack, they're getting a meal while he's mm -hmm. teaching. So from their end, it's all, it's all a pretty good deal. You know, your family gets fed, um, and you get fed spiritually at the same time, and you know, and, and you didn't have to go away and buy food. <laughs> How could they all hear? That's a lot of people for one man to be talking so this, to. This is an interesting question. And, and this has actually been something that people have looked into where they've said, you know, how does this happen? But there's a couple of things that we know. We know, number one, that this actually happened in, in early America too, that some people like George Whitfield would preach to thousands of people and discovered that they were heard just fine. And it's all just a matter of acoustics when you're outside. It's a matter of where you're standing and where people are. And, and you have to have a particularly good, strong voice. Um, but it's not impossible. And notice that most of the time when Jesus is preaching, most of the time, not always, but most of the time when he's preaching to large crowds, what's the, what's the geographic landscape? He's on a it's mountain. By a lake. Well, oh, that's yeah. true too. The lake is not bad either. Lakes are actually good for acoustics. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but he's on a mountain. So they can sit around him on the mountain and, and he can speak over the top of them and it carries pretty well. And, and they're, like I say, there've actually been people who've studied the acoustics and studied the possibilities. And they've all said, 
it's not even supernatural. It's absolutely humanly possible for one person to speak to 5,000 people if they're kind of organized properly, if they're kind of sitting in a semicircle and you happen to have kind of an amphitheater in the natural you know, geography of the place, that it absolutely can be done. And like I say, some of the early revivalists spoke to thousands of people, um, hundreds at least, um, and, and had similar experiences where they had no amplification because such a thing didn't exist and yet people could hear them. The other possibility that people postulate is that, you know, you've also got the whole town crier thing where, where every, you know, 800 people, you have somebody who's passing on to another 800 people what the first 800 people heard. That's yeah, possible. It could, it could work that way too. So I, I just think it's interesting you ask that. And that's actually, there's like whole fields of study on this. <laughs> is this possible? And the conclusion is yes. It's, it's not only possible, but it's happened at other times and other places <clears throat> before amplification existed. We know that this this was a thing that people did. Yeah, but you think they're they seem like random spots that he's chosen. Yeah. Well, I, I, let's just show, let, we're just going to go here and talk for a little bit, and then all these people show up. But then, because they, they would, if he's trying to get away from the people, he's not going to sit on the mountaintop waiting for them to come. Well. I mean, he might, not in this case, right? I think more likely what happens is, I, I imagine even here, it's not like he showed up and 5,000 people were there. I think he showed up and there were several hundred people there, maybe a thousand or few, and he begins to preach. And then as things get bigger, they resituate, uh -huh. you know? And so so then he's like, well, let's go over here. And they move up on a mountain. Or as Meredith pointed out, you move out into a boat where the acoustics of the water might help you out. You know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you kind of resituate as you go. And then eventually there's 5,000 people there. But I don't think it's probably like, like we're going to a conference and we already know there's five thousand people coming to sit, you know. In yeah, they could have come for the food too instead of the teaching. By the way, Shakespeare is another example. I don't know that he ever had five thousand people, but things like the Globe Theater, they didn't have amplification, but they would have mm -hmm. many, many, many people who would be able to hear the play. Yeah. yeah. So it's just a thing that we don't we don't do anymore because <laughs> we don't have to um yeah so <clears throat> uh good okay john chapter <laughs> chapter six well let me look uh, do we want to just stop here well let's read john's version of the story john goes on to talk about some other things that happen as a result of this story which are very interesting because we kind of forget the connection he goes on to talk about being the bread of life, which is directly related to this story um, and even to their reaction to it, that, that there seem to be a group of people who start following Jesus around just because they want a free meal, which I find in, incredibly believable. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely uh, what some people do. And to be fair, uh, I might have done. Certainly as a young college student, I would follow people around for a free meal. So, you know, but but John kind of emphasizes that and how Jesus even gets a little bit annoyed, not that they want free food, but that they're missing the larger point. Um, but we're not, get, we won't read all that. We'll leave that for next time. But let's go ahead and just read, just to kind of cap off, let's read John's version of just this part of the story. So when Jesus looked up and saw a great, no, no, sorry. Sometime after this, and as far as chronological markers, I love John's. John's is just like, uh, just at some point, somewhere in the world after all this other stuff, which tells you nothing at all. This could be months, years, days, weeks, whatever. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. <coughs> that is the Sea of Tiberias. 
and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. See, that sounds very intentional. He, he sees the crowd and he goes up. Excuse me. <clears throat> this is God's sign that we need to wrap up. He sees the crowd and he goes up on a mountainside. So I think it is because he knows they'll be able to hear him better. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, now, again, we'll talk about why John mentions the Passover festival and the others didn't. We'll talk about that next week when because it ties into the bread of life question, but we'll, we'll leave that for now. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. John shares it from Jesus' initiation. Like a lot of these stories, both can be true at once. Some of the apostles can come to him and say, what are we going to do? And then Jesus can turn to Philip and say, yeah, what are we going to do? You know, it's very possible this all happens, and, and we just have different emphasis from different gospel writers on what they saw, what they heard, how they remembered it, or what point they want to make. doesn't mean they're contradictory. It just means they all happened. Um where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? <laughs> he asked us only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Why is he testing Philip in particular? Who knows? Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough food for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? John, interestingly enough, gives us the, he's the only one in this story, in this story, who gives us the detail of where the loaves and the fish came from. And interestingly enough, they came from the least resourced person in the crowd, from a young boy, from a little person, right? <laughs> it's not even like, you know, somebody who supposedly should have a lot of resources that didn't come from the wealthy guy there, just came from this little boy. Who, by the way, I'm guessing, was willing to give up his food. I, I, I doubt the apostles tackled him and took it. So we, we can give the little boy some credit here too. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. <laughs> and Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. This is an interesting point John makes too. Um, this isn't like everybody can have only a certain amount. This is like, just keep feeding them till they're done. And then there's still basketfuls left over. Um, he did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This whole series of stories is all about Jesus trying to get away. And here it is again, this time a slightly different reason. Although I think he's still grieving and he's still tired and he's still trying to get some rest. He also at this point is recognizing the crowd wants to make him king by force. And we know he's not ready for that. Actually, I don't know if he's ever ready for that. I don't know if that's ever his plan, but pretty clearly not. We do have Palm Sunday where that is almost what happens, but even there, he undercuts it. Um, as we'll see when we get there, and doesn't quite let it happen even there, although he, he certainly allows a lot more of it than he does at any other time. But this also goes to why he keeps telling people to be quiet, right? He's like, he, he does these miracles and says, don't go tell people. I think part of it is that he is, he knows that he, his, his popularity is soaring right now. And he's getting to a place where people are just going to force him if they could, which of course they couldn't, going to force him to be king. And he does not want that. It's too early. It's not the plan anyway. He's not going to be king. Despite what his apostles want at this moment, he's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to die. 
So, so now he's actually withdrawing partly to, to lower the temperature. Instead of turning this into a big rally where they become more and more frenzied about just how great he is, he actually cools the temperature down, steps away and says, nope, I gotta, I'm gonna back off and I'm gonna try to get off by myself. We'll pick this up in a couple of weeks and we'll see how John continues this thread of what I call Jesus's longest day. He's tired, he's grieving, he keeps trying to get away, he can't. In fact, what's gonna happen next, and we'll pick it up there in a couple of weeks or next week. I don't know why I said a couple of weeks. Now I'm not assuming I'm gonna do it weekly. Yes, I'm planning on being here next week. Um, he, he um, What we're gonna see is that the first thing he does is he actually sends the apostles away in the only boat they have, which is an interesting move, but it is kind of a way of saying, I am going to be alone now and you're going to leave me um, even though I don't have transportation at this point, but that's what he does. He's like, you take our only boat and leave, and I'm going to stay here by myself. But then John picks it up from there and talks about how even that, he, get, he does get a little time, uh, but I don't know if he gets much rest. Um, so we'll pick that up. Again, there's a thread. The crowd continues to follow him. There's a thread about this whole feeding of people bread, kind of the lesson that Jesus tries to give about that, and the the obtuseness of the crowd to refuse to listen to the lesson he's trying to give them um and uh we'll, we'll pick all that up next week so any comments on anything before we sign up for the evening um i really like the the flow of the like the disciples coming back and then like saying all this and and in some ways they were like, well, in a lot of ways they were having to trust God because they didn't have like what they needed and stuff like that. And they have been given, you know, authority to like do this, but then like how, like Jesus just like stretches it further, you know, with the, like, will you feed them, you know, and you do this. And then just like recognizing the, you know, it's a, a bigger authority than they thought. And even just the authority that comes from Jesus you know, and stuff like that. And I think that's a, a cool flow and like, a, I mean, um, obviously, yeah, God planned it and worked it all out, but I, I really like how he's like, just like working through them and everything and kind of teaching them and helping them grow. And it's all like connected, not just like, oh, and then Jesus did this. Oh, and then the disciples did this. And then I think that's really good. And it is, it is like, it's a, it's a movement forward for them. You know, it's it's a new challenge. When I when I used to work at the Apple Store, I noticed something, and 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 that I they did this with me, and they did this with everyone else they trained after. That one of the things they they want to do is give Apple Store employees authority to make people happy. So so they they sometimes give more authority than some people in retail do to 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 troubleshoot to you know even to even to give discounts or you know there's certain things that that we're given authority to do to make people happy. And one of the things I noticed in training is first they tell us that. They kind of encourage us that. Then they shadow us and they and we watch them do it. There's a certain point which they tell us, anytime that you want to make a customer happier and you're unsure about whether you can, you come talk to us because we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out. But what I noticed is when that happened, when people would go out into the store and they'd run into a problem and then they'd say, let me go talk to my manager. They would go back and talk to the manager and nine out of 10 times what the manager would say is, what do you want to do? go fix it. You go do it. And it just reminds me of Jesus. You know, they're like, well, should we fix them, get them food? And Jesus is like, you go do it. Nine out of 10 times, that's what the manager would say is, look, if you think that they deserve 
this or they need this or you should give them this free thing, you go do it. That's what you, just I give you that authority. And and it is kind of what Jesus is doing. He's he's reminding them of their authority. He's saying, you go do it. You go do it. You know, that's, yeah. that's well, he does that with the church, too. I mean, yeah. like we're kind of like, right. yeah, not great at being what Jesus encourages us to be and he still gives us like the authority and just like it really actually gives us the authority not just like <laughs> says he gives us authority there is a lot of a lot of uh, and this isn't a surprise but but it is when you look at the gospels there's a lot of correlation between what he gives the apostles to do and asks them to do and what he ultimately gives the church to do and asks it to do there's obviously a lot of correlation in that authority which makes sense because the church is, even by Jesus' own words, an extension of the apostles. Um, you know, yeah. And, and so that. And he's sense. still the head, and. And he's still the head. That's right. And he still provides the resources, and he still calls us to impossible things, and we still often turn to him and say, "Are you sure?" And he says, "Do you still not believe?" But he still treats us with compassion and grace. So, I think all of that is still true. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.